The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Some Orthodox Christians would argue that the whole process of dying changed with the death and resurrection of Jesus, which raises the question, what do we know about pre-Christian notions of what happens when we die? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today on NDE Radio is Clifton F. Guthrie, Ph.D., Cliff is the Circle Professor of Ethics and Humanities at Hassan University. He received his B.A. from Duke University, his Master of Divinity from Candler School of Theology, and his Ph.D. from Emory University. He taught for 15 years in theological education at Emory University and Bangor Theological Seminary, where he was one of my teachers. And during that same time, he published many books and articles on practical theology and was a visiting scholar at Cambridge University's Psychology and Religion Project. In 2007, he joined the faculty at Hassan University, where he teaches ethics, philosophy, and religion, coordinates the humanities area of the School of Science and Humanities, and directs the annual Hassan Symposium on Ethics. His most recent publications include articles about smart technology and ethics, and he is writing an ethics textbook based on recent findings in Moral Psychology. Cliff, welcome to NDE Radio. Well, thank you very much, Lee. I appreciate uh, the chance to talk with you. <clears throat> we ran into each other, uh, what, a few weeks ago at uh, a Pachakacha conference <clears throat> in Bangor, Maine, and um, we got to talking about death, and uh, so we decided we would uh, continue this on the air. Um so I'm going to open with this question, Cliff. Um, traditional Christianity teaches Christ descended into hell, or perhaps more correctly, into the underworld, during the three days between his crucifixion and resurrection. So what did the people of his day think about hell and where we go when we die? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. And by the way, I think you're right that you know traditionally Christianity does have that... Um, belief in the the catabasis the the descent into the underworld that that shows up a couple of times in um the new testament i think it's a letter to peter if if i'm not mistaken one of those texts and i think paul makes reference to it as well this idea that um well it, it starts kind of with the question if um if christ is the one who saves um all humanity then how how does that happen for the people who live before Christ? And, and the answer uh, traditionally was that Christ went into the underworld to preach to the dead there and, uh, and offer them the chance to uh, receive the gospel. Um, and and so that idea gets picked up um, in traditional Christianity, and uh, we actually see that sort of explicitly in, in Dante um, later on in his um, uh, great uh, poem, The Inferno. But... Um, you know what that text has uh, in in a kind of a nutshell version is the the kind of a the regular or folk understanding of of what happened to people um, after they died uh, and and that was essentially that they went into the underworld um, that you know when you die you go into uh, 
and it's sort of an afterlife. It's kind of a shadowy existence. Um, it's it's not entirely clear um, how how much of a bodily experience that is, but um, certainly there are a lot of traditions that seem to indicate that that the the form, the spiritual form um, of of your body would go down, you know, as a kind of a shade into this uh, darker uh, realm. And you had a kind of a quasi-existence in which you lived, I don't know, maybe a, a way of thinking about it as a kind of an echo of the life that you lived um, uh, in your mortal body. Mm-hmm. Now, there there were some uh, other texts that took different directions. The, the Book of Enoch, for example, had a much more uh, oh, uh, angels and uh, a, a heaven where where people could have a, a happy existence and and I think a hell where they they wouldn't. <clears throat> that came that was a pre-Christian text, although I don't think more than a couple of centuries before Jesus. And then of course there was the um, Plato's story in the Republic about uh, Ur and his vision of a heaven, hell, and rebirth, uh, uh, reincarnation after that. Um, Absolutely. So so there's some varying traditions, and uh, you know just like there are many, many different cultures today on Earth with um, many different ideas about death and the afterlife, you know, that was also true in the ancient world. So you had, I suppose, a couple of different primary um, patterns. You know, one of them was this underworld idea that I spoke of that was very common to the Greco-Roman tradition. But but then you also had, you know, like you've referred to other traditions that, that talked about the splitting off of the good from the evil, and the evil would, um, you know, would suffer uh, torments of hell, and and the the good would um, go off into uh, the ethereal realm, you know, like beyond the 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 realm of the stars, uh, where they would live with the gods or or enjoy paradise of some kind. So, I would say, you know, those are very common, both of them common patterns in in um, the in the time before uh, Christ. Hmm. Now, in the Jewish tradition, there seem to be a couple of different ideas. Um, some Jews believed that uh, their only immortality was preserved in their children, mm-hmm. through, I guess, through their DNA, while others apparently believed in a soul life. So how did, how did those traditions come to be so different? Well, I couldn't tell you how they came to be so different. I mean, I, I think that in the Hebrew Scriptures you do see... Um, you know some some different ideas, and and one of those um, famous ones is a similar kind of uh, idea of a, a sort of a shadowy afterlife. Um, and you see this in uh, particularly in the Psalms, uh, with reference to this this place called Sheol, where you know death is a kind of a an experience where you know you are taken and and you live again this kind of shadowy uh, existence. So, I mean, I think those ideas were common, and and then, of course, you had, uh, by the time um, you know, Jesus uh, uh, was around, you had other folks who had much more explicit ideas of um, of, of heaven and, and even ideas of uh, resurrection. Hmm. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, and uh, where did where did all that imagery come from? That was about thirteen hundred. Thirteen. That's right. So that's that's quite a bit later, of course. Um, and 
and uh, the, his poem and the ideas there were both very influential, but also in some ways very typical. I mean, he he was drawing on traditions that go back uh, to all these things that we've been talking about, plus um, uh, very explicitly from Virgil, um, who in in the Aeneid talks about um, a similar journey uh, down into the underworld that. Um, that his hero Aeneas takes, and and he's in fact guided. What's interesting about Dante, of course, is that in in Virgil, Aeneas is um, guided by a, a female um, uh, uh, help helper, you know, who takes him through the underworld. Uh, but then when Dante comes, um, you have Virgil himself becomes the guide through the underworld. But then, of course, he meets. Um, his uh, love, Beatrice, who then takes him into um, uh, the upper regions of, of uh, you know, particularly in paradise. So uh, right. Dante's Dante's drawing on um, on Virgil very explicitly, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, there's lots of ancient literature that that has um, these hero journeys into the underworld. I, I was just looking at one um, that goes back to uh, Mesopotamia. Um, you have the descent of Inanna or Ishtar um, into the underworld. Um, you certainly have that in Homer too, when Odysseus goes down into the underworld. Um, it, it's a, a, a kind of a set piece for the hero's journey um, in ancient literature to have your hero go um, into the underworld to be acquainted with, you know, what what the kind of reigning ideas were there to, to meet a. Uh, People that there might be some business to that still needs to be dealt with, um, and then they're led through. And so um, you see this, like with Osiris and I, um, Isis as well in Egyptian mythology. It's sort of a, com- a very common motif. So it's not surprising that it shows up in the New Testament that that Jesus also um, the the hero of salvation also has to go down into the underworld um, to uh, to preach. Mm-hmm. So it, that the Jesus story is really following a traditional pattern. I, I think it's very clear that it is. That I think where it's maybe not so traditional is that it's not elaborated on. It's sort of um, it, it's it's mentioned and commented on, and and of course it gets um, it gets it's it's seen as such an important idea that it's actually put in the Apostles' Creed, the original version of it, okay. at least. Uh, many mm-hmm. Protestants take that line out because it's it seems uncomfortable, but um, it but it's not elaborate like um, uh, Jesus's journey through the underworld isn't fully fleshed out. I don't know whether anyone ever did that. Whether there's a text that that talks more about um, uh, that, but it's it's like Christians have that idea, but it's um, there's a certain reticence to elaborate it. Very much, uh, maybe because it would acquaint it would equate um, Jesus's journey with some of the great you know heroes of the pre-Christian uh, Greco-Roman world. Yes, a, a, a corollary to that, I, I think it's kind of interesting that Virgil uh, in um, Divine Comedy can't go past. Uh, I guess he can't go past Limbo because he was considered to be a, a pagan, a virtuous pagan. But if the story of Jesus is true, then Virgil, I would think, would be among one of the saved who could travel then up into the uh, into the heavens. 
Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> that would, yeah, actually, I think Dante would have preferred that he, that he could have written, um, uh, Virgil in that group of, of folk, but, uh, actually, if I remember correctly, um, Dante is quite circumspect about the numbers of the, the number of people that he specifically names about uh, of those who um, go off into um, the paradise as a result of Christ's preaching. Uh, and he t- typically names again. I'm straining from memory here, but I think he basically names the heroes of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, you know, Moses, Abraham, and so on. Uh-huh. So there's like with Dante, there's not a lot of speculation that. Um, um, that the, you know the great Greek, a lot of the great Greek heroes uh, accepted the gospel and then went off um, into uh, paradise. Right. Well, it may also be that Dante wanted to work his the love of his life, Beatrice, into the into the story. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, some of the um, <clears throat> some of the wilder visions of hell. As I recall, came from um, came out of the Jewish tradition after they came out of um, being taken into Babylon. In other words, they incorporated some of the stories from that tradition into their own. Yeah, are you? Do you have any particular texts in mind, or, or? I don't. This is just a general <laughs> a general memory from uh, things that I've read in the past. Um, th- but some of that. Um, I mean, there there is a real hell in, in that tradition, I do believe. Yeah, and, there, and maybe, there is. And and you also see, you know, the rise of apocalyptic literature, um, you know, as a result of those traditions too. Uh, the 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 kind of, um, you know, I always saw uh, apocalyptic as um, a literature of hope. You know that, however terrible the world is um, that we experience it now, however much suffering or political oppression we might be having, um, uh, you know, there was this sort of hope that that there would be an intervention by God into human history and that um, somehow this would all be uh, righted. And, and so that's one of the reasons why I think it's um, important for Christians to remember that, you know, the, the primary example of apocalyptic literature that exists in the New Testament, um, the book of Revelation. I, um, I I know this is very strongly worded, but I tend to tell my students that, you know, Revelation is really not written for comfortable people. It's it's for, for people who are experiencing suffering and and, uh, and need to um, have an experience of hope. So, um, you know, I, I would really caution against trying to read say too much into apocalyptic literature or too much into revelation to kind of sense what it might be saying about, you know, the end of times or anything. I, I would think it's much more about, um, you know, a suffering people who are, who are trying to figure out why the world looks as bleak as it does. Hmm. There's, um, uh, of course, many traditions have, uh, Something like the Noah story, where there's a, a, a almost an end of the world, but a remnant survives to go on and repopulate the earth. And uh, <clears throat> there's a sort of a cyclical nature to that that the the Hopi pick up on. I think they say we're in the fourth world right now, where the, the, the we've been nearly wiped out three times before, but a few virtuous people 
were preserved by the spirit to to uh, to go on and to to uh, continue humanity. Um, and then there's uh, on top of that, there is this notion of reincarnation. And I don't know do, do the do the cultures that uh, believe in reincarnation have uh, apocalypse as part of that tradition as well. That's a great question, and and uh, I. I, I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem to me that I can recall any connection with apocalyptic literature and the idea of reincarnation. They, yeah, it's an interesting topic because it seems to me that apocalyptic literature sort of presupposes a linear view of history. Um, mm. That is, you know, that there's a creation and then providence has guided um, humanity towards a specific conclusion in the future, and so apocalyptic literature tends to, to step in and say, here's what that imagined future is going to look like in history. Uh, reincarnation typically follows a more um, cyclical pattern of time where the soul is is in a kind of an eternal circle of death, um, of life, death, um, and then reincarnation. Um, and, and within that wheel of individual life is a larger cyclical wheel of time, and so um, you know, salvation is much more uh, in those traditions about the soul being able to break through that um, that cycle of time uh, and be relieved of the burden of life. Whereas apocalyptic literature seems to presuppose the tragedy of death. Um, so, so it's it is fundamentally true that those who believe in reincarnation. Um, are not going to see death in quite the same tragic way that the West does, that has this kind of linear idea of, the, of time that comes out of um, particularly Judaism mm-hmm. and, and all this, uh, the traditions that it influenced. Um, to jump to a, an entirely different point of view yeah, sure. for, for a moment... One of your major interests and what you what you're teaching about is uh, ethics, and I was wondering uh, how are the kids of today or the university students of today influenced or not influenced by um, a, a religious approach to ethics? In other words, do they take the the, the stuff the uh, stuff we've been talking about, like uh, eternal judgment, into account when they're when they're planning the ethics of their lives, for example? Well, I think some do. I, you know, I teach here in Maine, which uh, has a very low uh, religious adherence rate, and so uh, there are certainly uh, some conservative students who've been raised in conservative families and and have more traditional ideas of um, of everything. You know, more, tradi- more traditional ideas of of the Bible, more traditional ideas of uh, what it means to to live a life sort of under the the watchful care of God. Um, I would say that you know that's a, a relative minority, and we have seen you know some student data that you know that those numbers are actually quite small. They they often struggle. I have to say, um, they have, they often struggle in my ethics class and in philosophy class because it's it's difficult for them to sometimes to understand that ethics is um, fundamentally something that we all have to do together because we all have to live together we have to figure out how we're going to or you know make sense of our world and live in peace and so on and so 
if you come from a strong religious background, it could be um, uh, Christianity, it could be Islam, um, uh, Judaism, whatever it is that you bring, and students, you know, different students bring all those different things to my class. We still have to live side by side, so simply quoting scripture um, doesn't work for people who don't accept that. Um, and and so it's, uh, I think, you know, those students often, often struggle. I'd say that, you know, the vast majority of my students, um, they tend to fall down um, in, in what we call sort of the moral, the camp of moral individualism, that, that they, uh, they, they sort of fundamentally believe in their bones that, you know, every single person is different and has different ideas about right and wrong and is entitled to have different ideas in right and wrong. Um, and, and that idea is very appealing to them, and I think it's because uh, maybe they come to college and they, and they start encountering folks that, are, that think differently than they do or live differently than they do, and, and they're, they're straining very hard not to be judgmental because, of course, they've been taught by their families not to be judgmental, uh, which is a good thing. Um, but um, So they accept this kind of moral individualistic view that, that's hard for them to shake out of because if you don't accept moral individualism, then you actually also have to accept that some people's views of um, how we should live our lives might be better answers than others. And so, you know, we have that whole extreme in, in, uh, in college students today, those who have sort of more traditional, even fundamentalistic views that, that all right and wrong comes from the, you know, the pages of scripture, uh, and those who really don't believe that, that there are better and worse ways to live at all. Uh, and so it's, it's a fun thing to try to teach uh, when you're trying to teach ethics, um, to, to kind of realize, to help students understand that, that we have to actually work together and talk and, and come to some common minds about how we live. Because as I try to explain to them, if we don't do that, if we actually don't talk about how to live um, and organize our lives, both individually and politically, then all we're left with is power. All we're left with is who can get the most votes, who can get the most people in Congress, and then we'll just force everybody to live like we want them to live. And, um, and I find that a society that just uses power as a way to, to talk about these fundamental ideas about you know living together... It, is a weak society that uh, it doesn't seem to bode well for the future. Mm. Or maybe that was more than you wanted to know, but I, you know, <laughs> the, the, the students actually, I find it to be very, very good, very careful, very considerate of others. Um, and, and partly because of that, you know, they're reluctant to engage in this hard work of, um, of conversation about ethics. Where you have, uh, some religions taking uh, power as their primary tool. Do you see some students saying, "Well, religion is the problem rather than the solution"? Yeah, we have a in lot. In other of, words, yeah, and, and yeah. a lot of people say that, not just students, right? Um, it's yes, it's, um, very tempting to um, overstate or understate the nature of of religion and um, and its um, connection with power. Um, y- you know. Religion is is something that human beings have, and as human beings, um, they're they're going to fall into 
good aspects of religion and and um, and bad aspects of religion, or let me put it this way, forms of religion that that in a sense promote um, what sociologists call pro-social behavior. You know. Uh, the kind of behavior that helps people to live together in, 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 in increasingly better ways. And, and, um, and so, obviously, some people use religion uh, to that end, and we do see evidence that, that, that there um, is, uh, you know, there does tend to be more um, charitable giving among people who are religiously minded. Um, but, of course, then there are other folks who... Uh, find their religions kind of insulate them from each other and separate them and and um, draw in-group, out-group distinctions that that uh, make it increasingly difficult to, to live together. So religion is as complicated as human beings are. It's, um, it's neither, you know, intrinsically good or bad. It just, um, it, it's all of that. That's, that's my take on it. Do you, do you find in your students that most of them have a, a belief in the whether whether or not they have religion as part of their uh, practices? Uh, do they have a belief in an afterlife in in the nature of eternal nature of a soul? Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. I I tend I'm trying to think whether I've ever asked them that explicitly, and I don't know that I I do. Partly because I you know I don't want to put people too much um, at odds with each other over these kinds of things. But I, I think, that, you know, some of them do have this idea that um, that there is an afterlife and others are are much more stoic and, you know, think that, you know, that death is the end. Um, uh, I think you have, just like you have in culture at large, you, you know, you have all kinds of folk um, in the classroom. And I, I have to say that mostly what I do is, is uh, teach when I teach undergrads, I'm, I'm teaching mostly freshmen who are 18, 19 years old, and there's, you know, at, at the stage of their lives where they're they're coming into their own beliefs as as opposed to, you know, just accepting whatever the beliefs of their families of origin happen to be. Um, and so, I have that great privilege of kind of getting them to think critically about their their own sort of assumptions, and and that's that's a wonderful thing. Uh, a great, a great gift to be able to do that. Sometimes, in the culture, it seems like uh, people have a, perhaps a growing interest in personal mystical experience, even at the same time while we watch the mainline churches uh, dwindle in in numbers. And uh, I wonder if that's reflected in your student body as well. Yeah. Um... If if they're interested in spiritual experiences, it's very personal. And um, what we don't really see much of on campus is um, is our students organizing to do meditation or um, engage in other sort of spiritual activities. I mean, there is a, of course a, a kind of a core conservative Christian group on campus. There's there's you know um, certainly there are folks that are tied to their churches and, and mosques and synagogues. Um, but um, if if the students have these kind of individual spiritual beliefs, they're very individual. They don't think about them as um, as, as needing sort of collective connection, and and I find that sad because um, and of course it's it's the um, the journeying with other folk that 
that tempers our own kind of uh, imaginations and excesses of, of behavior one way or the other. Um, being with other people teaches us forgiveness, both how to forgive and how to be forgiven. And um, and I think this is one of the, the big struggles with um, a kind of a post-Christian culture in like we have in New England is um, suddenly, you know, people aren't belonging in that same way to um, to a group of other folk that, that they just journey with about the the deeper meanings of life. Um, and and even, I would, I would say, even within the church landscape the way it is now, um, this consumer's kind of idea of religious identity is such that people can get in their cars and go to whatever church they happen to agree with. So, you know, I guess a little, a little bit of what I'm missing is this idea that, you know, you go to your local church and you're there with people who are very different from yourself, people you might not like very much, um, people you might not do business with, and yet you're all there and you have to learn how to accept and, and live with each other. And, and and I think, you know, this is one of the, the costs of the decline of traditional um, religion, but it's, you know, whether it's religion, the decline of religion's fault or whether it's just the advent of, you know, consumerist society, um, I, I don't know. But I, but I do I do think that it's sort of a loss for us. I mean, even in sort of very simple things like, singing together you know unless you're unless you're a member of a church or unless you happen to be you know a member of a choir as an adult human beings don't get together to sing very often together um you know maybe at the ball game at the seventh inning stretch maybe that happens but um that idea of just singing together kind of being uh, together and in, in that way is is something that um that we just don't have um and we've you know, the, I guess the idea for singing these days is that someone holds a microphone and sings at us or for us. But, mm-hmm. you know. Uh. Well, Cliff, uh, sadly, it looks like we're out of time for today. Um, tell the folks how they might get in touch with you if they wanted to, uh, if they had any questions. Yeah, well, I'm very happy to. Um, my, uh, I work for Hassan University, and um, I'm very happy to receive an email uh, if they'd like at um, at Guthrie C at Hassan.edu, or if um, you didn't get that down, you can always go to the uh, Hassan.edu website and find me under the faculty directory and uh, shoot me an email that way. Thank you. Well, thanks to our guest, Dr. Cliff Guthrie, for this fascinating discussion. Uh, if you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, check out their website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs> 